NPR. In Davos this month, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave an address. And to be honest, even Zelensky seemed a little tired of giving the same speech. So I don't like to hear my voice. He doesn't like to hear his own voice, he says. But he went on to underline again just how critical U.S. aid is for a Ukrainian victory. Without it, it is not possible. And one particular form of aid Ukraine is running low on is artillery shells. Ukraine uses various types, but one of the most important NATO standard shells is the 155. 155 shells are these clunky bombshells, 155 millimeters in diameter. Picture a big champagne bottle that will kill you. On the battlefield, they're used in howitzers, these modern cannons. Ukraine is firing a lot of these and similar shells since Russia's invasion, about 7,000 a day. But the U.S. and Europe have recently been supplying fewer 155 shells to Ukraine, partly because they can't make them fast enough. Shortages like these have been blamed on a philosophy of manufacturing called just-in-time production. This is The Indicator from Planet Money. I'm Waylon Wong. And I'm Darian Woods. And this week, we've got three stories related to the defense industry. And on today's show, how just-in-time production moved from car makers to the war machine. We ask whether lean manufacturing styles are leaving the U.S. naked in a crisis. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Babson College. Discover Babson College's Master of Science in Management and Entrepreneurial Leadership Program, an intensive nine-month journey that equips recent college graduates with practical skills for today's dynamic business landscape. Tackle real-world challenges and emerge with a problem-solving mindset. Whether you choose to start your own business or innovate within a corporation, a master's from Babson will help launch your career forward. Apply today at babson.edu slash msleader. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com indicator. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. Just-in-time production is more than just getting things delivered just in time. It's an entire method of manufacturing pioneered by Toyota in the 1930s. Cynthia Cook is the director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. There's a focus on efficiency and quality. You're using parts as soon as they come to the factory. Reducing inventory is a key component that saves on storage costs. But it also forces a culture of making higher quality components. Because if your exhaust manifold is misshapen, for example, it's not like you've got a stack of other exhaust parts lying around. If a part is delivered and it's broken or it doesn't fit, that can shut down the factory line. Just-in-time manufacturing also means factories have to work really closely with their suppliers. That approach will spill down through every level of the supply chain so that everybody is tightly coupled and understands what's happening and can posture to meet demand. 
In the second half of the 20th century, this approach spread from Toyota to other civilian manufacturing companies. And by the 1990s, people were asking whether the U.S. military should adopt just in time. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the defense budget in the U.S. plummeted. It halved as a share of national output between the mid-1980s and 2000. And around that time, there were plenty of examples of what a lot of people considered waste in the military. In Iraq, after Operation Desert Storm in 1991, the U.S. had more than two years' worth of ammunition supplies left unused. And so the U.S. military was particularly motivated to learn from the private sector. A culture of just-in-time production and associated philosophies like lean production filtered through the Department of Defense and its suppliers. Contracts were awarded largely to the companies that could provide equipment for the lowest possible cost. While the Department of Defense was encouraging supply chain efficiency— The type of wars the U.S. was fighting changed. Iraq and Afghanistan in the early 2000s started with a burst of initial intensity, but were mostly long periods of low-intensity conflict. Demand for missiles and howitzers and 155 rounds went way down compared to previous wars. But the war in Ukraine exposed something. Remember, Ukraine uses around 7,000 artillery shells a day against Russia. The U.S., mostly through its main supplier, General Dynamics, does not make that many. The rate of production before the war was about 14,000 shells a month. That's been expanded. That's been more than doubled. And this doubling still falls way short of Ukraine's usage. It is a challenge. To make matters worse for Ukraine, the U.S. has now been sending more of its scarce 155 rounds to Israel during the Israel-Hamas war. Cynthia says ramping up arms production is not a matter of just flicking on a switch. You have to be real careful about just increasing the size of the plant. You know, there's a lot of safety issues in building these. So the U.S. Army has contracted a new facility in Texas to get built, and it's drawn up some multi-year contracts with suppliers, trying to give them more certainty. It's also looking offshore. It's paying companies and places as far afield as Poland and India to boost their ammunition production. The military hopes to get to making 100,000 rounds a month, and that would be more than a tripling of today. But that won't be till 2025. So how did the U.S. military get into this position, where its supply lines are being tested by a war it's not even directly active in? And that's not even considering what might happen in a larger war if, say, China invaded Taiwan. William LaPlante is the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. And last year at a symposium, he blamed the military's general supply issues on one core thing. I remember getting lectures about this, that we needed to adopt just-in-time delivery, minimize inventories, and, and drive your costs down. Well, that's great until something bad happens. And we've paid a price for it. The Military Balance is an annual publication about defense economics worldwide. Robert Wall is its editor. He's been documenting the shortages of everything from HIMARS rocket launchers to utility cannons. It's not just artillery shells. It's happening in air defense missiles and other areas. There are new conflicts popping up everywhere and new strains that make dealing with these challenges even harder. To Robert, two things happened at once that made the U.S. military supply chain vulnerable. First, there was emphasis on short-term efficiency. But secondly, with Afghanistan and Iraq, the U.S. just got too familiar with a completely different type of warfare. We had gotten used to the fighting phase of conflicts being rather quick, Because if you think back, 
Yes, the U.S. was fighting in Afghanistan for years, decades, um, same with Iraq. But actually, the intense part of combat operations, those were relatively short. It's maybe a bit unfair to say, but I think the feeling had set in that's just how wars are. Robert says just-in-time production is often not appropriate for the military. I mean, just-in-time is the phrase we focus on, but really what we're really talking about is that everything has gotten so lean that you have no fat in the system. Fat in the military means flexibility in the case of a shock. Cynthia Cook at the Center for Strategic and International Studies is quick to add, though, it's not about throwing out the wider just-in-time approach altogether. The challenge is not an industrial base that relies on just-in-time production. The challenge is an industrial base that doesn't have sufficient resiliency to surge when the requirement to surge exists. Cynthia says that just-in-time production incorporates a range of principles, not just skimpy inventories. You know, it also means things like getting quality right the first time or close communication with your suppliers. Cynthia would like to see an overhaul of U.S. defense contracting and procurement that doesn't just go for the lowest bidder. Concretely, could that look like the Department of Defense paying for excess production capacity, I guess, people and factories that are not really being used at full capacity? You have put your finger exactly on the challenge. When you talk about investing in excess capacity and keeping workers around with nothing to do, that's exactly the challenge. Just this month, the Pentagon made steps in that direction. The Department of Defense released its first National Defense Industrial Strategy that seeks to fund spare production capacity. In some ways, this is a perennial debate. Like, should a country keep a full standing army in a time of peace? Or in the civilian world, how big should stockpiles of masks be in case of another pandemic? But what the last few years has taught us with Ukraine and the pandemic is that keeping low inventories has real costs. Tomorrow on The Indicator, we continue looking at the defense industry. This time, we consider what happens when a country at war enters peacetime. Theoretically, the defense budget goes down, freeing up money that could be used for other things. So how can this peace dividend be used effectively? This episode was produced by Cooper Katz McKim with engineering by James Willits. It was fact checked by Angel Carreras. Patty Hirsch edited the episode. Kate Cannon edits the show. And The Indicator is a production of NPR. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR the game where cards control the conversation. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter.